I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Well, Grace, um, I've actually got you another really, really, really good guest for the podcast who I bumped into doing Steph's packed lunch up in Leeds. I've actually already been on this person's podcast. I know him just as well as you do. Thank you very much. Why didn't you think to ask him to come on our podcast? Because he's obviously a very interesting guest. It was me who asked him. No, Grace. I asked him and he said yes. He's very funny, isn't he? He's very, 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 very funny. But he's also really smart when he's being serious. And I really the reason I wanted to get him on is because we had a in fact we don't talk about this much, but we had a really interesting conversation about politics. And he's just very he's got a very smart, interesting take on things. Yeah, I mean I I even doing research for this, I felt jealous of the fact that he's so well read and won celebrity mastermind. I'll never be a celebrity or win mastermind so well, you, might, you, you, might be, you might be a celebrity grace but the thing about mastermind is that you have to study and read a lot he reads a lot of books yeah although sadly no not i mean diaries. <laughs> well to an extent he has read a version of your diaries from his own head he did. That was Hasn't that was he? that went kind of quite big on social media when he read a bit from pretended to read my diaries. It was about me fantasizing about having sex with Dan Whittacombe. It was quite funny. Tony Blair, by the way. Which we in- this is a really yeah. funny story, right? Uh, I sent the thing. Well, I sent it to you when he did it, right? He he read the, he pretended he was reading the diaries and he said, I looked across the room, there was Anne Whittacombe. Why did I feel so passionately towards her? Is it wrong? No, this is socialism to feel like this. <laughs> Anyway, so I I sent the clip. I sent the clip to loads of people. The only person on the planet who seemed to think it was really reading from the book was Tony Blair. And he he sent me a message saying, please tell me you didn't really write that about Anne Whittacombe. Oh, my God, that is so funny. I know, I know. Anyway, shall we we get going and say who he is? Yes. Okay. So our guest on the podcast this week is a comedian, is... and he's very, very funny, and he's written a novel, and he's written plays, and his name is Russell Kane. Russell, when are we going to get in the studio so you can read the whole of my eight volumes of diaries? Because I, I think you've definitely got the feel for what they're about. And yeah. Why they matter to the public. 
the the speed at which I read, it would be a very short audio book. That's the only problem. Russell, had you read any of my dad's diaries? Ever? I'd read his one from when he. I have. I'd read his one from when he was fourteen, when he fractured his forearm masturbating, because I felt I could relate to that chapter. His radial bone actually came through the skin where he was masturbating so furiously before morning prep and Latin. <laughs> a wanker, wanker wassa <laughs> No, I hadn't. I've got to be complete. Do you know what it is? I'm um. I'm not like a massive politics nerd anyway, but even if I was, I'm a massive literature nerd. And I love, I mean, there's Evelyn Waugh's diaries up there next to me. I just can't get into diaries. It's just not a genre I enjoy. My very, very favourite writers, Flaubert, Iris Murdoch. I can enjoy travel journals. I read Flaubert's travel journals around Egypt, but as soon as it's Wednesday the 18th of April, I think it, I'm a bit impatient. I want the condensed narrative version where the story goes from A to B. I'm a bit lazy. I don't like hunting for the details. I think I need to. You need to read my diaries and prove you prove prove how wrong you are. Well, I'm giving my blast. Uh, Flaubert, by Flaubert, by the way, is my favourite novelist, and I did decline and fall for O level. No way! How and are you? Can I tell you? I, I I told Grace today that you were uh, you won Celebrity Mastermind, and your uh, your your specialist subject was the life and novels of Evelyn Waugh. Correct. And we'd never heard of him. What? Oh, it's a man. <laughs> I thought Evelyn was a woman's name. What did you? I'd was, never heard of this person. It's one of our fine, the one of the finest English, not Scottish, novelists ever to have lived. So that's good. Uh, but Flaubert, I, I like. Well, I would say uh, Madame Bovary is the first modern novel in any language, eighteen fifty-seven, maybe. And it's it's just mo- as modern today as it was. The, the first person to, by modern, I mean the way it dips in and out of consciousness and you, you're not really sure, sort of shifting viewpoints, unreliable narrate, and it's just a fucking amazing banging story about a randy wife with a boring doctor husband. So she goes bang in the village and it's, it's just great. It's absolutely fantastic. I've, I've read all of them. I'm a nerd. I've even read like Bo, uh, Bouvard and Pacouchet and um, Temptation of St. Anthony, the shite ones as well, and all the, all the short stories. I just love him. He used to sit in the bottom of his shed, Grace. This would be a good stand-up writing tip. And he used to write and he used to roar until he found the right adjective mid-sentence. <laughs> Blue. And then he'd write it down. I just love that. It's like the stand-up process. Were you always a proper a book nerd? No. Absolutely not. Council, estate, nobody. Uh, the only books in my house were the my dad's diving manual and my mum's microwave cookbook, two next to each other. There was no, and it wasn't, it wasn't that my mum and dad did anything wrong. It's just not a world they knew. It's it's like. Did, did you, your, dad, your dad ever dive in, into the microwave? <laughs> Probably, yeah. He liked cooking, but he was a, anything masculine, scuba diving, weightlifting, rugby, even football was too effeminate for him. Uh, um, so I, I managed to go all the way to, I'm going to say, 17, 18 years old before I realised there was another world other than building site or working in a shop. I had no indication that I was not the top wealthiest class you could be in British society. Totally ignorant that there was anything beyond where I, where I grew up. I knew there was rich people on the telly and stuff, but I totally took without question this is what you're supposed to do. You 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 grow up, smoke some weed over the park, work in a shop, nursing home death. I did, it didn't even occur to me there was a hack called read a shitload, be more clever than all the posh people and earn money. I didn't know that was a thing. 
What, what happened in school then? Nothing. That was the problem. Up until about the age of 10, I was incredibly bright, top of the class. I, in fact, I, there was talk of me sitting an exam to go to some sort of specialist secondary school for brighter kids. Not like really ones that can do like maths in five seconds and, and look up into their skull and shit. But there, my local one called Latimer, not that Latimer, but another Latimer, um, you, you had to sit an entrance exam. My mum was only like 20 years old when she had me and she went, the only other person we knew that went there was the lady who ran the cheese counter in the co-op. Her son was this guy that had gone there. And so my mum went to cheese lady in the co-op and went, shall I send Russell to Latimer? And she talked her out of it. She said, He's ne- you know, David's never happy. It's a pressure school. He's learning all the time. It's just about homework. They don't elect kids to be kids. So the cheese lady got me stuck in the comprehensive. And as soon <laughs> as, soon as I got there, um, that was the end of that because, and this is the, this is the problem we have with the comprehensives. I know what, I, I understand what the impulse is. That everyone have the same education, but it's not a real educative, if I can coin a phrase. That's not what happens. Particularly boys, when they get to a mixed environment, you want to survive. You want to lose your virginity, smoke drugs, be the toughest. Not English, maths, Latin. So, of course, my value system temporarily inverted for five years. By the time I'd realised there'd been an inversion of my value system from education to social prowess, it's too late. You spat out the other side. I did get five GCSEs just, but too late. I, I'm living in my nan's flat at this point. So what did you think Because I feel like still in like grammar schools and private schools, people just want to lose their virginity, try drugs, be cool. They probably do. But do you? Th- but their results are different. Why do you think <laughs> the results, the outcomes? the measurable outcomes of grammar schools and private education. The measurable, you can tally up in points the A-level scores of students that go to private schools and put... But a lot of, a lot of that has to do with wealth. And also, you know, the, you get a different sort of education. It's like, look at and all this stuff at the moment about rape culture in schools and all the, the kind of sexual stuff that's happening at the moment of a pretty questionable nature. It seems to be focused mainly on private schools. So yeah. I think private schools get far too far too good a reputation yeah. for the for the education they actually deliver given the money they yeah no, definitely and i got an education in other ways but the the thing the other misnomer about the comprehensive system that people don't understand is it's a private it's a, a paid for education system by proxy i.e by how expensive your house is so it is a moneyed education system if i live in a 600 grand house in a 600 grand house neighborhood and send my child to the local comprehensive it will be full of middle class parents involved in the pta and taking their kids to museums in the holidays and doing all of that if i live in a council house like i did my dad did buy his own council house thanks thatcher in the end but um if, if we do that i'm more likely to be at school with, as i indeed i was with kids from broken homes with kids that can get weed ecstasy mdma which indeed i was uh with tougher kids who are more into fighting which indeed i was um i mean i did i, I was fine i wasn't bullied or anything and i managed to bounce around like a pinball and come out the other side and have as i say have this moment of revelation age 19 about i need to read my way out of the ghetto once I realised education was a tool, I got sort of hooked on literature and it was just a happy accident that I really, really enjoyed it. Then I quickly redid my A-levels. I, by, by then I'd fallen out with my dad and I was living in housing association flat with my nan in a box room. And I sent off A-levels through the post. The internet was there, but it wasn't quite there. Um, and I had to study A-levels out of a box, phone a tutor, post essays whilst working full time. And I got the fastest ever A-grade from enrolment um for sociology that year and in fact betty boothroyd handed me an award for my a-level a grade and then i went to 
wonderful woman. Yeah, and I and I got went to union, and then my feet stayed on the gas. In fact, I was the only person in my year to get first on, on my degree, the only one. Uh, but that was it. Was more like anger than intelligence. You know, like a boxer half half my weight could knock me out through aggression. That's how I studied. I had half the intellectual weight, but no one could outfight me once I got there. Yeah, but Russell, a good to my mind, if a good comprehensive school, which I would argue that Grace went to, for example, you'll get the middle class kids with the pushy parents, but you'll also get the kids off the council estates, and they learn and develop together. Um, and I think that what's the trouble is if people, if everybody has your general view of comprehensive education, then what happens is that the people with the wealth and with the influence they just migrate. Uh, and then you do end up with six schools. I, I think the problem isn't that um, we, we should have a negative view about comprehensive education. I think it's the way people are educated there. There's no acknowledgement of differing ability. There's no acknowledgement of different types of intelligence. It's that try, try to retro. They try to retrofit the academic model into a world where people have got lots of different challenges. And there's no skimming. There was just no skimming of the Einsteins in my school. The, the, they just the Einsteins just fall into the wayside. There wasn't an environment where you can spot the talent. Now I don't. I'm married to, as you know, secondary modern still exists in part of the country. So I'm married to a woman who went to a secondary modern. My dad went to a secondary modern. My mum, my brother-in-law, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law. So I in no way endorsed sticking someone in the thick bin aged eleven. Nonetheless, had I been skimmed off at eleven, it would have helped me. <laughs> Instead of a grammar school, after second eleven plus. Yeah. So, like, basically, a comp- no, it's not a comp. It's nothing like a comprehensive. You sit an exam at eleven, and the bright, poor kids, or the or all bright kids, go to the school with other bright kids, and anyone who fails it gets stuck in the thick bin. Secondary modern, you know, it's a terrible system. Terrible, wow. terrible. People's lives signed off at eleven. No doubt about it. But I'm conflicted the same way I am about Thatcher's council house policy. Is that people like me? probably would have benefited from acing an exam at 11 and hanging around with other people who at least were bright to start with, regardless of whether they were smoking weed by the white sheds. Mm. Um, but you, but you, were obviously bright. you were obviously bright and your brightness came out later. But, um, but how much... You, I mean, it is in, it's, it's really interesting to me that from the background that you came out and you suddenly became obsessed with Evelyn Waugh. How did that happen? Just good writing, good storytelling. Right. Really funny, obviously, the early ones anyway. Uh, really simple plots, not simple, but you know the, the plots have real scaffolding on it. It's the opposite to Hemingway, who I also love, by the way. Very Im- imagistic, and he looked up, and there was a dove, and there was a cloud, and he had a feeling. What was the feeling? That's Hemingway. Um, so I sort of what I what I get from war, I, I don't get from Hemingway because I do like Ponty writing like that as well. It's um, I don't know. It's just it's funny. It's well written, and I think I'm a little bit like. Evelyn Waugh in the way that if why I think Evelyn Waugh was Evelyn Waugh was sort of upper middle class but obsessed with aristocracy and spent his whole life fantasizing well I've lived with my life working class fantasizing about people with hummus dips and pedigree cats and sitting on pink fluffy couches in brainstorms that became like an obsession to me when I was still in the ghetto so I've ended up I guess there's an affinity even though he's obsessing with a different class that this sort of outsider looking in Sort of Henry James is very much the same as a novelist. And it makes for a good comic, makes for a really good comedian if you never feel at home, if you never feel like you belong, because you're always able to objectify your environment. And if you can objectify your environment, you're more likely to think of jokes about it and reflect on it and satirise it. So I never fit in. When did you start? 
When did you feel yourself becoming a comedian? Uh, well, again, sorry to get like the violin and the, the, the coal miner's hat out, but when you're growing up, um, I wasn't like poor. I, as I said, I've always felt wealthy, um, but you don't really do cultural pursuits. So we don't, oh, come on, it's Saturday. Are we going to the theatre this weekend, guys? Or what should we do? Let's go to, let's go to this art installation. It just wasn't, it wasn't part of our makeup. We went out for a curry or whatever. Um, so I managed to get all the way to, even to uni without even knowing stand up was a thing. All I knew was my dad laughed at Jim Davison and Bernard Manning on the telly that there were these American comedians that, like Eddie Murphy that people watched, not me, because I wasn't American, didn't speak to me. So I, for me, comedy was Blackadder, the young ones, men behaving badly. And that was it. That's as far as I was always the funny one, always the joker, always the, the, the part in the school play. But that was where it stopped. Then I thought, well, I've, I've clearly got an affinity. If I can learn books this quickly in ACE exams, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be a writer. I went to uni, aced that, came out, fell into a plum job copywriting in an advertising agency which i loved i'm on the pink fluffy couch i'm doing the brainstorm i bought a flat in clapham on purpose even though i know no one in south london just so i could say i lived in clapham um and uh, i managed to go Is that where you are now? no 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 i left I, in the end i was like why am i living here so i've moved to north london where i've got more connections <laughs> so um but i managed to go to the hardly any unis former polys further education institutes hardly any do not have stand-up. I managed to find the one fucking place that had no comedy at all. So I'd gone my, it was, I was just never exposed to it. So I found myself age 25 in an advertising agency. Someone tapped me on the shoulder and was like, Russ, you're always up doing the pitches. Um, when we're like pitching against like, for Vodafone or whatever, you always make the client laugh. It bags the business. You make everyone laugh at the office. You're the funniest person I've ever met. Why don't you try stand-up? It was literally someone telling me at work, age 25. I had never watched it. I'd never watched it on telly. I'd never bought a comedy DVD and I'd never been to watch it live, ever. So that week, being the way I am, straight into the comedy club, watched it once, thought, yeah, I could do that. And then booked it next week. And I was like, oh, fuck, that's what I'm supposed to do. Then it was three years of building enough security and income on the side to leave my day job. And don't you think that as well, like, sometimes I think the less knowledge you have about stand-up or any kind of creative thing the better or more original your take's gonna be I agree. because you're not copying anyone just coming to it with like well this is how i interpret what being a stand-up I, is alan carr always says he never watches other people perform strongly agree. he just goes in does what he needs. yeah strongly 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 um, agree i mean i didn't even realize that you had to have a punchline that sounds ridiculous but i don't think you do who made that rule if people pick was laughing all the way through the story and you go yeah and that's the end of what my mum did they'll clap anyway so i didn't know that so sorry sometimes people really thought that's what when i started doing stand-up i felt people were, were judging me because i wasn't doing writing jokes in that way of like everything had a punchline and i felt really like i'm not doing it properly and then i realized but people laugh throughout why do i need to have this but um bum bum yeah exactly sort of callback at the they thought, I, they thought I was experimentally so postmodern. Why are you doing it? Where have you learned that? I'm like, no, I just couldn't think of an ending, so I did the next bit. Simple as. Well, listen, <laughs> Russell, you're called Russell, you're called Russell Kane. Yes. And Harry, Harry Kane is the captain of the England football team, and football's a very working-class sport, and you're this big working-class comedian, right? But your name is Greeno. Grano. Yeah, Huguenot you know, French. No. Is it French? Huguenot you know, originally. Is it French? I would imagine it's Huguenot. You know. 
you're a French, you're a French nobleman. Apparently, uh, I mean, if, if you, those names came in in the 1600s, so I've never managed to trace that that link. Um, so when I started um, stand up that that month, I'm talking about when my friend tapped me on the shoulder. They, you have to do what's called open spots where you're unpaid and the compare, he picks up a list and goes, right, our next act is trying out every night. Russell, Green you. Well, how is it, mate? Green, green you. And every night. So the audience <laughs> already like, get a proper name, cunt. Now, now in 2021, I would I could do like a GoFundMe. I was victimised for my name. My cultural heritage has been cancelled and make a documentary on the BBC. Too late now. <laughs> I was angry, and uh, so I changed. Why I went home to my the girlfriend I was with at the time, and I read out Russell with a number of different surnames. And said, "Which one do you think sounds best?" It was that. It was the copywriter in me looking for the best branding, the best sound. Do you pronounce Grano? Correct. How you said it. It's like like Grano. Yeah, like like Renault with a G at the front. Grano. So when you went when you were at school, you said my name is Russell Grenno. Gren, I would say I would anglicise it and say Grenno, but it would of course be Grenno would be correct. But I would say Grenno with an, with an en sound. Uh, but I was Greeno. I was Russell Greeno the whole time. Greeno, Greenu, Grinyao, never Grenno. So I, do you speak French? No, no what from the sixteen hundred? That would be some powerful DNA that got down. The way you pronounce it, you sounded no, like you have no, a really good really French accent. I've got holiday French, holiday Italian, holiday Spanish, and holiday German. Enough to like order in a restaurant and be polite, but nothing, nothing more so. And I'm good at accents. You couldn't, you couldn't go Ed Yezard on us and do multiple probably with comedy. practice. Practice, I think I probably could. Yeah, I'm quite. I'm when if we. The show in French, would you change your surname back? Probably. <laughs> in Spain, I'm... Uh, Roussel when Roussel. I do gigs in Barcelona and Madrid, I'm Roussel Carnet, of course. <laughs> <laughs> if I... I would have changed... I wish I'd changed, Sorry, I wish I'd changed my first name because, obviously, being completely ignorant of comedy, I didn't realise there was already Russell Howard and Russell Brand. So all I got and still get is, oh, there's three Russells of comedy. Oh, you yeah, know, the Russell... Like, I mean, just because we've got the same name, we get put in the same pot. It's beyond the simplicity of racism, that same sound means same thing. No, we can't have two Russells on the line. <laughs> exactly. Up. And uh, so I wish I'd change my first name. Russell, you had Russell Harty as well. Was he considered first? That's who I was named after. He was a he was a TV host that was on t back in the day, a long time ago, even like before. I don't really remember him being on telly. But when my mum was pregnant, that he had his own chat show, and that's where my mum got the name from. You were named after Russell Harty. This is build, this is building such a link between the generations. Have you heard of Russell Harty as well as Evelyn War or not? No. Russell no, Hardy. no. Never heard of him either. Listen, the um I was really I was impressed though that you won Celebrity Mastermind. That that says to me you've got real knowledge because you've got to do the general knowledge as well. Yes, yeah, I did really can't just do your specialist. Yeah. In fact I did better on my general knowledge. I dropped two questions on the Evelyn War bit. Um it's the name of his Somerset house, Pink. Picton, by the way, and uh, and yeah, yeah. Uh, but the general knowledge I just got lucky. The only one I got wrong was what name? What the bread made in Germany? What translates as farting bread? I didn't know the answer. The only what one, is it? Farting bread. It's the only one I got wrong. Pumpernickel. What is it? Pumpernickel. Oh, <laughs> How good is that? Pumpernickel. Uh, I went back again. <laughs> I, went, I went on Mastermind again to do Ernest Hemingway, but like I said, it's much harder to be tested on someone who doesn't have plot. So I came third. Yeah. Now listen, Russell. Yesterday, 
Grace was one of four people attending the civil partnership of me and her mum. I saw that. Who'd been together. Yeah, we've been together 41 and a half years. Congratulations. And I was looking at your... Yeah, he was, he was really gagging for congratulations. Yeah. And I wasn't really. But I was looking at your life story and you had a long-term partnership and then you got married and then it fell apart. That's right, yeah. So I'm sort of worried that I've done the wrong thing. So what, you'd been together for a long time, then you got married and you split up short after? Long time, in, it depends how you define long here. We've got, uh, you know, Jurassic measurements of Alistair there, or we've got like aphid measurements of Grace. I was with this guy for three days once, it just went stale. Grace the Mayfly. Um, so we were together about three or four years and it was one of those ones where we had loads in common. It really worked. We were living together. But I guess as soon as you got married, you, we realised, oh, it's not that type of together. So it's very amicable kind of, mm, should we undo what we've done? And we just, we just sort it, of... Where the marriage like exacerbated that. So lots of people, I, I know so many people who've gone through breakups in this whole COVID lockdown situation because it sort of puts everything on speed and makes you really think, do I actually want to be with this person? Did the marriage exacerbate that feeling of, oh, actually, are we right for each other? I think so, yeah. I think it was perhaps the gave more introspection and reflection. It coincided with a period where I had to go away and, and work as well. And I was like, don't really, I wasn't missing them properly. And you start to look the wrong way at other people maybe and I don't do cheating I do break up then go sow your oats or whatever I don't I don't do the normal male thing if don't have the courage to have the conversation so I'm going to show you friends um so yeah but but it was very like I said we didn't it was every book we knew it was everyone's book was there was no money to fight over no house we were just it was totally amicable and both gone on to happier things mm. very lucky and near me sleds listen I'm very interested in the just listen to you talk and when I've had chats with you before when we've been on the same programs and stuff in in the kind of creative process do you set out to be funny all the time or are you trying stuff out when you're talking to people just kind of going about your business or do you sit down and think right now I have to write material that's going to make people think that I'm funny what's yeah, your kind of it's none of it's it's none of those so they're very broadly very yeah. broadly speaking if you go and watch a comedy night when the theatres reopen which they will stop eating bat people uh, they you will see two types of comedian that night they're both equally good one type is not superior to the other the only difference is type a will probably be remembered in a hundred years and talked about which as you've probably gathered i'm type b so type a is a writer writes fantastic material you can quote provokes they're your frankie boyles your jimmy cars they're your bill hicks your chris rocks they're your bill burrs you could look at a passage on the page and go isn't that brilliant i could read it to you they actually do a proper craft write a proper joke then there are people that have just monetized their personalities and are probably saying the stuff they would have said anyway into a microphone just funny person funny mate who's got the bollocks to go on stage i'm that type i i'm not i don't want to like piss off any of the stand-ups listening, but I don't write anything that I do. If I've got a show coming up, uh, like if I'm previewing a new show, which would be analogous to a musician writing an album, I'll book a 60-minute slot in a tiny theatre and I'll go on with 10 bullet points. There might be the time, Lindsay had an argument on an aeroplane 
the time I work with uh, Alistair and embarrassed him, and it, that's all I'll go on with. I won't, and I'll tell the story as I was telling my mum or my mates on stage, and listen to where the audience laugh. And then the next night, I'll either keep that story or I won't. And then, in a Darwinian way, I find the optimal way of telling that story. But ultimately, mm. if we were at the side of a stage at a fundraiser and you and I were talking about this horrific sandwich you were eating, we were laughing at how bad your sandwich was, there is a high chance I'll go on and talk about that sandwich there and then with no preview. So I'm type B, which is a sick enough for type A comedians who all want to kill me and are jealous that I can write really quickly, as it were. But the downside is I'll be completely forgotten <laughs> within two years of dying. <laughs> Who's, what's Billy Connolly? Is he A or B? Because he's going to be remembered forever. And he feels like True. a B. True. Yeah, he's a B. I would say he's definitely a B, but he's obviously, you can't all be Billy Connolly. <laughs> he's yeah, he's the, length, the length of career. I mean, it is what I've got, I suppose, is a sort of talent, but it's di it's different. I'm definitely, there is, I'm never like, if I'm with you in a room and making everyone laugh in the green room, I'm not like trying trying out a bit, trying to be funny and thinking, oh, yeah, that's just that's just how I was born. I've been like it since I was five. I'm like it before we go on air at Steph. I'm like it during Steph. I'm like it after Steph. <laughs> there is no – I don't really have an onstage persona is what I'm saying. I have a lot more energy mm. once I, once I'm because of the, the nerves, but it's the same – it's roughly the same person. You love, like, okay, so you love to take the piss out of sort of woke culture <laughs> and, like, the new, you know, you did this amazing video, which, like, people always shocked that I, like, I I find all of this shit really funny. And you did this really good video where you're playing this personal trainer who's talking about all of your different pronouns and <laughs> the non-binary stuff. And you do it in a really funny way, obviously. But, like, I know people that would see that and be like, I just don't get it, right? Now, how do you get shit online? Not really. No. Treading lines of like anti, because you're not being anti woke, but you're you're mocking the fact that we're we're all going too far now. That's the that's the key point, though. What I'm doing is I'm extrapolating ad absurdum, a current trend. I'm not mocking where the trend current is currently is. That's the key difference if you're trying to walk the line. So at no point in that thing you've quoted it's interesting how you've remembered it which is means i've done my job properly you've remembered it like comedy about pronouns which i never mentioned it's uh this guy is talking about names that names themselves are oppressive and that even me calling yeah. calling you alice if i call you alistair i'm trying to contain you within a noun and it's an act of phallic aggression and that we should use sounds to represent ourselves like uh, or eh. Um, so it's funny, Pete, I'm incredibly, I try not to put my politics on stage because I want everyone in the room to laugh and I don't think I'm good enough like Nish Kumar. I don't really, I'm not really good at making that stuff funny. I'm actually, for the record, a Green Party member, let alone voter. I've paid my 60 quid a year, whatever it is. And um, so I do believe that the most important thing to be able to mock is your own politics and then not enough of it on tv it's people when they mock their own politics it produces an interesting type of satire where you're able to interrogate your own position and throw light on it and ask questions in a way that isn't aggressive it's the easiest thing in the world for me to make fun of gary bulldog with his union jack profile taking back control from brussels and indeed i do all the time much harder for me to make fun of people who do recycling but i do because i want to learn 
I, I think it's funny. Do, do, a, do a bit of green. Do a bit of green comedy now. Take the piss out. Well, of in the fact, my, big, my biggest, my biggest show I've ever, I ever did, arguably for me critically, was the one that won the Perrier Award. One of the routines in there that made it on TV, that made it onto like fucking iTunes streaming release, um, was about how um, you know people with. The, the idea of green party versus sex life is you, you get fully naked and aroused and then you just like separate out the card and tin uh, together in the kitchen. And I, and I do them rolling around, separating it, separating it out. And as they, they reach a certain level of virtue, they just ejaculate without touching each other. <laughs> I also then at the end of it say, I, I, why don't right wing people? I've never understood the association between the right not believing in climate change. There's no natural link there. The right, ident- right, the right identifying with racial purity or uh, masculinity, get it, don't agree with it, but I at least get it. There is no mm. fundamental intellectual link between believing the planet is heating up uh, and being on the right or left. There's, there's just no link. And when I was on stage, I said, if anything, right-wing people should be more inclined to recycle. Yeah, the uh, Margaret Thatcher, very famously, Baroness Thatcher, a massive green pioneer. One, it was one of her big things. She's this really powerful speech. Look up on YouTube where she's talking about it's the biggest challenge of the She was the first proper prominent world leader to lay that on the global stage. I love to, I love to see um, a lefty's face when I say that. Yeah, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. I've been, I covered that whole bloody period. But Honestly, you, look, you bought the Thatcher Kool Aid because of the council house, mate. I know, I know. I interviewed Hesseltine recently about it, funnily enough. He's a good man. But Russell, what do you think about, like, because what you're talking about is you take the piss out of a politics which is closest to your own, right? But then simplistic people will hear that and see that and say, oh, you're taking the piss out of environmentalists and, like, how dare you mock people who care about the environment? Mm. Do you ever get that in live shows? Never. Never. The reason being is I don't only mock my own position. UKIP gets a kicking... Brexit gets a kicking, centrist bacon sandwich gets a kicking. Yeah. Uh, every, every everything's funny and it's done with such affection. That's the difference. It's not done with spite. Plus, I can't think of anything more confident than when a woman or a man walks into the room and they are able to make fun of themselves. There's a confidence in being able to interrogate your own position. This is what people don't realise. If you're unable to tolerate your position even being examined. It makes it weakens your position. This is what we have to understand. Welcome. Do not um, no platform people. Do not ban Donald Trump's visit on the red carpet. Welcome it and come back with your combinations. That strengthens your position. With at the end of the I, I was never against Nick Griffin being on Question Time, for example. I, I was like, fucking bring it on because I knew what would happen when he went on Question Time. Sure enough, mm. it did. And now, where's Nick Griffin? Where the fuck is he? You know, he's, he, his common sense prevailed. And I think Trump, Donald Trump, mm. I, I would like to have seen him paraded down Regent Street and then seen how British people show what we think, thought of him. Mm. <laughs> yeah. What does your, um, are you are you married to your partner? Yeah, I'm married to Lindsay, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uncivilly. What do you think about, like, do you talk about your relationship extensively on stage yes. and how does she find that? We definitely, like, she's like my mum in that we have a practical, is it funny, are we going Maldives? Yes, you can say it. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's that's the God's honest truth of it. Sometimes she'll do something horrific. You know, like, we, like Lindsay's big like kick off in a restaurant because the chicken wasn't right. Person, how fucking dare you? And we get chucked out. And then once the tears have settled, she likes quite funny. Isn't it? Are you going to do it on stage? So she's she's pushing me. So, so great. She, un she understands Mario. the business model. She also doesn't get jealous, and she also understands if I'm on the road and don't call for a day, it means my head's full. I can't even drop a text. That's the type of person you need if you're a stand up. What um, is there anything that, that that happens in the world, either in your own life or in the world outside, that you would say I cannot be funny about that? I cannot try to be funny about it. Uh, well, there was this last two weeks ago with Sarah Everard. I had a number of messages um, drop. The first couple by my agent, someone direct message saying, "This is your platform. You're a man that can connect with forward-thinking straight men. Please do something about what's going on." It's not all men and all that. And on that occasion, and indeed I did do something a week later about sex education for boys. But for me, the key was leaving a period of time. I didn't think it was appropriate, no matter how funny, apposite, satirically, even if I got zero complaints, for me it wasn't appropriate to put glitter, which is what humour is, to put laughs in a situation where we're thinking about a woman who'd just been murdered in London. Mm -hmm. To me, that was the line crossed there. That said... Seven days later, when everyone had stopped being arrested and everything had settled, boom, out I come with a three-minute speech about what's going wrong with sex education with boys, which was very funny, and but never mentions the death. But it's off the tailwind of it. That's how I handled that. That happens all the time. Same with Black Lives Matter. Stayed well away until everything had settled, and then I gave my little four penneth. Mm. But what do you think about because obviously I mean I'm presuming a lot of your audience is male no and 60 are, 40 female no, well, really? well if I go by my social obviously when I look out to a gig it is heartwarmingly yeah. mostly couples and families which is job done which so in our heteronormative society mostly men and women sat there I do get gay couples as well but it's mostly a 50 50 split in a live room on my socials 60 40 female fuck knows why I know the hair. What can I say? Giel, Giel, come for the gun. <laughs> <laughs> but then that's interesting. Okay, so, but do you find, you do you ever get engagement from men online sort of asking to, for you to speak to this not all men and men who do feel somewhat attacked when stuff no. happens on the internet like what happened a few weeks ago? Do you, no. do you ever get shit like that? Never. I'm, I'm associated with the... If men are thinking like that, I'm part of their problem. I'm like a woke man who probably would back something like that. So like Gary is not going to DM me, Gary the plumber, and going, please, mate, do something defending men. Um, is it so interesting? I get, this, I get this from men a lot. You know, if I, I did a post this week about um, now that the sun's out, can men please refrain from giving women your feedback on their bodies and what you think about their bodies? And I got so many messages from men accusing me of um you know oppressing men and not all men and how dare you I compliment women all the time and they love it things that you thought sort of didn't really happen anymore and it is Bizarre. it must just be they they get really defensive I think when they feel like women are attacking them and they probably feel that same way about you they feel you're you're on that side okay on, on our side here's here's the here's the issue I just had a really interesting chat with Stephen Bartlett who's like one of the fucking top entrepreneurs in our country I think he's about 27 multi-million pound business got his things in all the pies he's got a musical on make sure you want to hang yourself Grace but he's nonetheless fascinating character 
he just asked this question. I'm only asking a question. Please don't troll me. We're allowed to ask a question. Last time I checked, this is not North fucking Korea, right? What, this is his words, what narrative is most useful in fixing this situation and driving it forward? But what is most useful to teach our daughters? Is it fear men, how to protect yourself, or and all men are the problem? It, does that fix the situation? If it does, bang, I'm there with my drum. All men's potential rapists, banging it. If I could prove to you that saying all men are potential offenders makes the situation worse, if I could prove that, you would have to listen to that sociological feedback. You would have to be open to the idea that creating a fear environment might, through no fault of your own, increase sexual offence rate through alienation and stand-up. That is a possibility. We might accidentally, for example, sexualise situations by constantly obsessing about paedophilia the way other European countries don't, and indeed we see that. Um, one of my favourite experiments I've ever seen is, is a picture of a, a dad with his uh, daughter and a female soccer team and all the little girls around him. And it's a heartwarming sports picture. The girls are in shorts and vests and there's the dad. If you show that picture to Italian, Spanish, French and German people, they see a soccer team. If you show it to British and American people, they see a paedophile. Now, you and I aren't paedophiles, but we would also see a paedophile because what's happened is... By obsessing about how many paedophiles there are, we sexualize people the way we see certain situations, which is not healthy for anyone. So we have to be able to have a debate about what's happening, how to protect people, women in these situations, but also the, how the rhetoric we might use may accidentally inflame and worsen a situation. That's the second bit we can't do yet. If I were to ask those questions, I would be cancelled. Well, it's interesting because um, after the stuff with Sarah Everard, you know, loads of men on the internet were saying, I want to be able to know what to do in a public place to make women feel safer. Yeah. And there was this split online from women being like, well, you should just know this already. It should just be common fucking sense. I do agree with that. You that. don't make a woman feel uncomfortable. But at the same time, it's that thing of, you know, men are now getting into a place where they feel constantly like they're under attack for something. Mm. So they want to be legitimised for if you do this, we won't think you're rapists, basically. And it's where does it end from being a woman's responsibility to explain? It's the same with a black person. Why should black people have to, have to explain to white it's people? It's not a woman's responsibility. It's zero like? percent a woman's it, responsibility it, it to explain. shouldn't be that. But then at the same time, you know, how do we get to a place where I this week, for example, I've gotten so many messages from girls on Instagram saying since the sun's come out and I did that post, I've got so much uncomfortable harassment on the street. What should I do in that situation? And I don't really know it's, what we should do because it just shouldn't be happening. to It us. cannot be fixed with rhetoric and heat. It can be fixed. Shall I quote the man himself, Alistair? Education, education, education. That is the only way you will fit. There is no shortcut here. You can't put an anti-rape handbook out and, and give men a YouTube lecture and sexual offence start. We must educate, particularly boys, but certainly girls too, earlier. Primary school. Every time the government tries to get through mandatory sex education in primary school, it never gets through. Ever. We're one of the few countries where it always gets blocked. As soon as it gets to the fucking nursing home, House of Lords, it gets blocked every time. Why? Because in this country, we believe if you talk about sex to younger children, it makes them think about sex when they weren't thinking about sex to start with. Bizarre logic. Last time I checked, eight-year-olds weren't thinking about the Tudors. If 
but we teach Henry VIII. No one goes out beheading fucking ginger people the next day. It's what an absurd fucking argument. My five-year-old daughter asks mm. me all the time, where do babies come from? What's that hanging between your legs? What's this? What's that? Children are receptive to this information. There's nothing weird or pedo about sexually educating a five-year-old girl and a five-year-old boy. Consent sex should be taught mandatory from age seven or eight upwards, in my opinion. That way, porn is not your first teacher. If porn is your first teacher, you are going to have a warped fucking view of women. Of course, but I think what we see now is that, unfortunately, there are all these generations who are too far gone for that, right? The people who are raping at the moment, the people who are murdering women in in these kind of heinous ways, they're too far gone. That's what has got to change for the future. But then I do think now, how do we, and and this is why, you know, I, I really respect I mean, the bar's so fucking low, but I respect you two for talking in the way that you do online. All men should, but I respect you two for for doing it and for not being afraid of of people saying, oh, shut the fuck up, you're just a man, what do you know? But I I do wonder, like, what do we do now to sort of make people my age and above we're doing it. Women, not... Grace, you're doing it. You're doing feel- it. You're doing it right now. Right. These conversations weren't happening two months ago. You are doing it. We, we, are, we are now. It's, ha- it's happening. How different do we all think about uh, racial uh, police aggression just since the summer? You know, we've, we've changed. Um, how, how different do we... We already are different about... Um, you still got me dropping out there. You got me? Yeah, we got you. We got you. Um, we 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 feel different about working from home. Like things do change permanently quickly, <laughs> and I think these are conversations we need to have. I don't, I do think it's a step too far to some sort of radical all men are potential rapists. Start. I know what you mean because I've studied sociology and gender, but for poor old like Gary and Dave on the street. I don't no, no, no. Sorry, not you. I, not you. I, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm talking. Oh. I'm talking. I'm saying. I'm, I, what, but it's correct. <laughs> That is a fucking fact yeah. that any any man could potentially be a, an attacker. It, it is a fact. I'm talking if you don't know the person. I, I could go to walk to the shops now. There's a man walking towards me. He could be a random stabber. I don't think all people are random stabbers, but it could happen. The problem with that type of rhetoric is it puts the backup of people who may have listened to a more moderate argument. So far as the common sense thing goes, then maybe there are some blokes who don't realise that if you're going out for a job, don't uh, at the last minute swerve off the pavement. Uh, but maybe we do need to, to 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 learn that you just jog on the other side of the road because it is scary. I find it, I'm a man. I find it scary if I hear running coming up behind me in London. Anyone does. Um, so we, education again, but it, the temperature doesn't mm. the temperature doesn't help. If we if men and women start to feel more disconnected rather than more connected, it won't improve the situation. Do you do you see yourself um as a serious person who is funny and uses comedy to make serious points, or do you self see yourself as a funny person who has a good brain? Second one. I, I'm, I'm, when if provoked and asked about heavy things like Grace is asking me about, I will give you my opinion from listening to Radio Four and reading. But that's not how I live. I don't live my life. I'm not a marcher. I do. I, I do log on to like the Green Party things online just to see what's happening. Yes, I've interviewed Caroline Lucas, and yes, I've made some Radio Four documentaries about politics. But ultimately, I love asking around and, and, and being funny. 
I just, if you get me on one, I'll talk about anything, diet, nutrition, anything, I'll get on one. What does, make, what does making people laugh do for you? Uh, on a surface level, it gives me loads of attention and makes my ego replete with hormones. And I'm just addicted to it on a shallow, egotistical, feel like a rock star, stand on stage, earn loads of money level. Not many people give you that honest answer. I just have. Um, on the second level is because I'm not a psychopath. Unfortunately, I'd be richer if I was. Um, I just, the, you cannot beat making people laugh. It's a real, it's a, it's a, there's not many things human beings do. do. Babies laugh before they can speak. So it's obviously one of the really basic parts of being a human, like anger or love or breathing or eating. So to be able to bring, to see that going onto people's faces, yes, there's an ego side, but there's also a kind of, oh, feeling like you've done something mm. amazing. And to do it, some of my best messages I get are not ones sucking my dick telling me I made them laugh all night. It's like, we came to see you last week. We almost cancelled. We lost a baby the month before and I didn't want to go to the show. Can I just say, thank you so much for making me laugh that night. When I get messages like that, job done. There's no amount of, like you can go and sit with a counsellor, but to feel laughter come back into your life, even if for one night, you know, you might be on chemo, you might be end of life and you go to a comedy gig and have a laugh. What a gift to give to someone. Because when you're laughing, you're actually don't give a shit about anything. It's the happiest you can be. To be folded so it hurts in the belly, that laughter, to give that to someone. You know when you're with your partner and you make them laugh like that, it's the best feeling in the world, seeing them laugh. So to do it to... Who's the greatest greatest comedian who ever lived? Well, I'm obviously coming to that, as I said, with my dearth of comedy knowledge, I'm I'm now sort of retro-learnt stand-up having been one. Um, Have ever lived... Well, you're going to, I don't mean to be pretentious, but it's probably going to be someone like, like Shakespeare or someone, someone like that. But do you mean comedian as in stand on stage with a, a microphone? I mean, I, mean, I mean, funny, I mean, professional funny man. I mean, you're Billy talk, Connolly, Connolly Tommy Cooper, all that lot. I don't follow or you, watch, if you watch any, like- sorry, I was just saying, I don't follow or watch any American comedian. The part of my brain that's supposed to find American comedy cool did not grow. I don't know who Dave really? is. I've never I know, I know, I know. I need to get on trend. I've never watched one minute of Dave Chappelle, not out of petulance. Just I've got a lot of stuff going on, and I like reading. So all my comedy is English, Australian, or or Canadian. But who is the greatest ever lived? Tough one. I would probably go for like a a two two flavors on my palate. My ideal night would be to watch Stuart Lee for an hour, then Tim Vine for an hour, and I would go home happy. They both bring me different things. But greatness, unfortunately, has become equated with loftiness. And I can't bear this elitism and dismissing people like Peter Kay and Michael McIntyre because they are pretty great. Oh, well, they're brilliant. I both. Oh, of course. I, I think for me, like one of the things that I feel I'm just pretty bored of hearing men say things I've heard men say before. That's, <laughs> why I, that's what I find about a lot of female. American comedians because they're saying stuff that I haven't heard men say yeah. ten times over. Funnily enough, the best show you could watch on Netflix would be Hannah Gadsby's, who's female, gay, Australian. Yeah. So I, you know, I share no cultural background with her. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, so far, so far as original voices, I don't care which hormones powering them out of the hole. 
gay, straight, male, female, somewhere in between. As long as it's as long as I'm laughing my ass off, I don't. I mm. then might think about it afterwards. I mean, if you want a tip for who's coming through, who makes me piss myself, Judy Love would be one. Black London female, mm, funny as fuck. She's type okay. B, type B, funny person, monetized personality. Yeah. Um, Russell, second, you were going to say Grace Campbell. I would say as well, yeah, but it's fine. We know that in this house. But <laughs> I would say if you if you haven't gotten into American comedy, Ali Wong is one of the go. funniest people. Oh my god, she's got two Netflix specials, and she's this Asian American woman, and she is just doing it in a way I've really never seen it. You you will piss funnily, yourself laughing. Funnily enough, Tiffany had tip. Uh, sorry, sorry, there's a delay. Tiffany Haddish as well. Uh, is, I have watched her, and I thought she was fucking great. She's American. She's so great. This is what I mean. That's why what I love about American comedies. They've got some, and we have here as well, but it's just not encouraged in the same way. I think to be a woman like that. So women, there are some American female comedians that are just doing it amazingly. And we lose our best um, talent. Je- we... Jeannie Asheray and London Hughes both fucked off. I know, I know. But fair well, listen, enough. Russell, it's been an f- absolute joy. We've talked Evelyn War, we've talked Flaubert, we've talked not all men. We've talked not all men. We've talked a bit of politics. We've talked agree. We've got the Caroline Lucas in there. We've <laughs> talked comedy. We've educated you about American comedy, and <laughs> you've educated us. On being well, me on being what the need to read more. Yeah, I really <laughs> love the fact you read. Great, you've got to read books. You can't be clever without reading. Do you listen to audio books, Russell? All I the listen time. to audio books all the time. I'm listening. I've got Patricia Highsmith at the moment. Is it Sweet Thursday or whatever it's called? Yeah, absolutely, she's another good novelist. If you want a if you want a feisty female to listen to, go Patricia Highsmith. The Sweet Sickness. That's it. Sweet Thursday Steinbeck. The Sweet The Sweet Sickness. Patricia Highsmith. Brilliant. It's about a guy who is he's going to marry this girl no matter what. He's totally obsessed with it. She's now married with a kid and he's still turning up at her door and it's getting more and more bizarre and macabre and twisted. She's someone I'd like to study on Evil Genius, my Radio 4 show. That's one fucked up yeah. woman. So, But what a writer, Patricia Highsmith. <laughs> Love. Yeah, so audiobooks, unabridged. I, just... I can't bear, so I've got to say, I can't bear the snobbery. Like, If I say to someone I've read War and Peace, which I have, I read it on audiobook going on tour 60 hours of audio read by the actor frederick davison there are some people that would say i've not read it as much as someone who's read the book not true so i always i always say to people i don't read and then they go oh that's awful you have to read grace you're not and i'm like no i listen to an audio no, book a week Fine. but yeah. I, it's not it's, it's not sort of seen i don't see it as reading because i'm not reading it is do you, know, do you know how i know I it's the same listen. Radio, I was on an open book with Marilyn Frostrup and they said, right, you can host a section, you can make it about anything. So I said, right, I want a neurolinguist and a literary historian and a professor to prove that when you absorb in a book by audiobook, it's absorbed in the same intellectual way, to the same degree and with the same weight as a book held by the hand. And the only thing that has lost... I think it's Probably, yeah. It's just the only... I think it's... It's just spelling and orthography that isn't tweaked, so you don't learn how what French words are like. Other than that, you absorb it just the same. So if you are reading audiobooks, you are reading. Get Evelyn War, brilliantly read. Handful of dust you'd like, because it's quite sort of withering about men and women. This podcast is sponsored by Audible. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, Russell. That I, I loved what you did there, where you basically said to Russell... Um, 
Russell, I've just gotten a civil partnership with my partner of 42 years. I'm so sorry you broke up with your partner of four years. <laughs> it was such a backhanded insult. You were like, so here's a brag that I'm going to make. And I heard that you split up from your childhood sweetheart. No, but what I was getting at was that a lot of people get married. Or we haven't got, as mum keeps saying, we're not married. Um, do you know? Do the long term commitment, and usually I think they're doing it after a long time because maybe the thing things are going a bit wrong. We got together. For, we did the thing for very different reasons to the campaign and all that. Um, so I was interested in that because it was quite interesting that he split up just after he got married. I know, Dad. Listen, I know all of that. I just thought it was funny. Okay, okay. <laughs> it was like. So, Russell, yesterday I actually got civil partnered, mm, um, mm. but you, you got divorced. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise, by the way, mum and I split up. We actually have to get a divorce now. You can't just uncouple. Wow. You know. Are you agreeing it? No, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I've got to tell you a terrible story as well. Do you know, do you know, do you know on our honeymoon night, right? Okay. Yeah. I thought, well, I might have to get, you know, get a bit sort of passionate and all the stuff. So, I thought I'd get to bed early, right? Got up there about half. Are you joking? I was, I, was, I was fast asleep by the time Mum came up. <laughs> I don't want to know any of uh, that. But listen, you've written a whole, you've written a whole book. Yeah. You've written a whole book about stuff that you do that I don't want to know. The two of you are my parents. You're basically siblings to me. Mm. It's disgusting. Okay, yeah, and we're, um, we're 126 years old. Anyway, listen. I thought Russell Kane was very interesting. I thought it was a very interesting discussion on the whole women and and with all this stuff going on in especially private schools i don't agree with him about comprehensives by the way but i understand where he's coming from but he's a very very bright guy he's a bright guy of course i get where he was coming from a lot of people would share that opinion who aren't necessarily anti-state schools so i got it yeah and um by the way the roman kemp from last week i did a big piece in the new european about him yeah. That's lovely. Yeah. I might, I'm sure he'll love that. Did you know that I used to go to uh, Anna, the nanny, replied to me after I posted that podcast and said I used to go to one of my nurseries or play groups with Roman Kemp. Oh right. Yeah. Oh, wow. What when he was a child? When we, yes, when him and I were children, Dad. When you and he were children. When he when yes. he and I, not when him and I, when he and I. When he and I were children, yeah. we went to the Yeah, and sadly you didn't listen in the English lessons when they were teaching you to speak properly. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. 
Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.